You're listening to audio from Grace Community Church in Anger, North Carolina. More information about Grace Community Church can be found at graceccnc.org. Sing about um, heaping up dead bodies and stuff like that. It's the word, though, and we're going to get into this uh, today. So... September 12th, three weeks from today, I believe it is, uh, we will be having a baptismal service. If you have not been baptized and you are a believer, if you've trusted Christ as your Savior, let me encourage you. It's so important that you be baptized. Talk with me between now and September 1st if you would like to be baptized. We will be having a service on that day. The day before that, September 11th, and on September 12th, we'll be having our next Grace Connection class. If you are new to Grace, you're interested in membership, or you just want to learn more about the church, this is the place to do that. We'll be meeting from 9 to 12 on Saturday morning, and then during the first service uh, in the Sunday morning session on September 12th. So Grace Connection. Uh, I want to ask for you to... Pray for one of our church family members, Donnie Hall, and the loss of his dear wife, Debbie, who was also one of our church family. Debbie would sit, Donnie and Debbie would sit right over here. They're very quiet, so you might not know Debbie and Donnie, but they're very much a part of our family, and she died very suddenly. And on top of that, um, Donnie contracted uh, COVID. He's Mostly past it now, but a lot of people either in our church or connected with our church who have struggled with COVID. Praise the Lord, and Lord, please let this continue. It's not been transmitted in here. The air system is probably a big part of that, but just pray for people. A lot of you know people who have been very sick or died recently. I've heard of a couple of deaths. Donnie, thankfully, is overcoming it, as many of you have um, overcome COVID, and so grateful for that. And also just want to ask us to all remember what's going on in Afghanistan. Look, our, our t- attention is focused there. It doesn't mean that there are not horrible things going on in other places of the world, but this is where this is, we're aware of what's going on in Afghanistan. And it, as we pray for these guys, just remember to ask the Lord to pray, especially for our brothers and sisters in Christ around the world who are facing extreme circumstances. And we're going to talk, I'm going to talk a little bit more about Afghanistan in the course of the message. But this is a good time to pivot to the message and ask you if you remember when the Bible started making sense to you. Do you remember when all of a sudden you would read the Bible and it's just like God is speaking to you it personally? I'm not talking about when someone gave historical and cultural particulars around a story and you may have, oh, okay, so that's what Daniel and the lion's den was about. But when it became very personal as if God were speaking directly to you. I remember when that happened to me. I was 18 years old 
And I had grown up in church all my life, but I was a long way from where you would expect someone who had grown up in church would be. But I, I, I acknowledged my sin before the Lord on May 1st of 1972 and, and called out and asked Jesus to save me. And instantly, my life was changed. And one of the biggest indicators of that change was all of a sudden, the Bible went from being a really technical book to like a personal word to me from God. Then I began to understand that it's really, it's written to the church and we do things as a community group. God has designed for us to learn together and to worship him together. But it's also very much an individual thing too. And we get to experience that love for the Lord in a very personal way. Now, just because I began to understand the Bible then doesn't mean I understand everything in the Bible. Although most years I read through the entire Bible. It humbles me when I recognize that a verse or a passage that I had thought meant one thing turns out to mean something very different than I had thought before. Look, the person who knows more about Scripture than anybody in the world is going to be learning until the day he or she dies. And in fact, I am in most danger when I think I don't have anything to learn. Now, just imagine what it was like for the religious leaders of Jesus' day. These were very powerful people. And they knew scripture inside and out. Just imagine what it was for them when Jesus gave them a lesson from the Psalms. You remember how tense Jesus' last week was leading up to his crucifixion and resurrection. The, the, the scribes, the Sadducees, the Pharisees all took a run at Jesus, trying to trip him up with their uh, brilliant knowledge and wisdom of Scripture. Jesus, should we pay taxes to Rome? Jesus said, render unto Caesar his due, give God what belongs to him. Jesus, a certain woman had seven husbands. They were all brothers, and none of them <clears throat> produced children with her. Whose wife will she be in the resurrection? Jesus answered, you err because you do not know the scriptures. Marriage won't be the same in the resurrection. And then Jesus asked them a question that stunned his opponents in the silence. He led them to think about King David's words from Psalm 110 in ways that they had not considered and showed how all scripture points to him. We'll pick up the conversation in Matthew 22, verse 41. Now, while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question, saying, What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? They said to him, The son of David. He said to them, How is it then that David in the spirit calls him Lord, saying, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. <clears throat> if then David calls him Lord, how is it he is his son? And no one was able to answer him a word. Nor from that day did anyone dare 
to ask him any more questions. Now, I could be crude and say it was a mic drop. It was Jesus' closing argument. Nobody had anything to say after that because they knew they had nothing to contradict what he said. So Jesus began by asking, asking them, who do you think the Messiah is? When you see the Christ in the New Testament, especially in the Gospels, talking about the Messiah. Who do you think the Messiah is? And that, by the way, is a great way to start a spiritual conversation with someone. You don't know how to get involved with it or how to, how to share the Gospel with someone. Just ask them, what do you think of Jesus? Who do you think he, who you think he was? Who do you think he is? The religious leaders did not know that Jesus was asking them about himself. They thought this was an easy answer. The Messiah, come on. Now, we all know that the Messiah comes from David's line. Now, I'm sure in the back of their minds, they're thinking, wait a minute. Jesus is from David's line. Because I can promise you, they knew. That Jesus was not only from the tribe of Judah. Somebody had probably done the work. They may have traced him back all the way to the kingly line of David. They knew though he was from the tribe of Judah. Even though they said look at Nazareth. There's no prophet that comes out of Nazareth. But later they said really? You're going to talk to us about our father being the devil? We're not illegitimately born. They, look they knew enough, they used the information in ways that would help them. So they're like, the Messiah comes from David's line. And then it was Jesus' answer that stopped the conversation. He said, really? But let me not get ahead of ourselves. Let's go back to Psalm 10 and find out what Jesus was saying that it meant and they could not deny it. Psalm 110, we've been standing for, for, for singing and we sang, we stood for the song from the Psalter, but we're going to stand again. It's our custom to stand for the reading of God's Word. A Psalm of David. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. From the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Thank you and be seated. There are several psalms known as the royal psalms that reference the kings of Israel in general 
terms. But there are only a handful of psalms that could be specifically called messianic psalms. Clearly referring to one, pointing to one who is greater than an ordinary king. Psalm 110 is not only a messianic psalm, but I would contend that the Bible does not work without Psalm 110. Now, let me say, God could do anything that he wanted to, but in the way that he has designed life and, 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 and redemption to be for us, the Bible doesn't work apart from, from this psalm, even though it's only seven verses long. The truths in Psalm 110 are so important that we're going to focus on verses 1 through 3 today and then 4 through 7 two weeks from today. Not next Sunday, but two weeks from today. September 5th, next week, we're going to be in Psalm 45, which is another messianic psalm. Why the break? Well, I had planned to preach on Psalm 45 next week for uh, a long time, and you'll understand when we get to it. But I realize that there's just too much material to, in Psalm 110 to cover in one week. I don't think you'll suffer too much whiplash from this schedule, but buckle up just in case. Psalm 110 is entitled, A Psalm of David. Now, in the New Testament, the title would be part of the first verse. You wouldn't have a New Testament verse that would... Uh, or a New Testament book that the title would be Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. And then verse 1 begin with to the saints who are in Ephesus. The titles of the Psalms give us important information and really can be considered as part of the Psalm itself. And nowhere in the Psalms is the identification of the author more important than in Psalm 110. The most quoted Psalm, by the way, in the New Testament. James Montgomery Boyce said by his, his reckoning, his study, and I didn't do this much study, so I'm, I'm pointing to James Montgomery Boyce, that verse 1 is either directly quoted or alluded to no less than 27 times. Think about that. The book of Hebrews is really an exposition of Psalm 110. It's almost like that's a sermon done on, preached from Psalm 110. So what's the big deal about this psalm? Well, in verse 1, there are two different names for God given. And if we read it according to the way that is written in the Hebrew, we would say, Yahweh says to my Adonai, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Yahweh is the name that God most often used of himself when he was speaking with his covenant people, with the nation of Israel. Anytime you see Lord in all caps in the Old Testament, it's the name Yahweh that is being translated into English for us. <clears throat> Adonai is translated Lord or Ruler. And while it was used of, of um, human lords or rulers, kings, uh, in this particular case, it's being used of God, who also went by the name of Adonai. 
often, usually in conjunction with another name like Lord God, Yahweh, Adonai. But still, Adonai is a name used for God. Jewish scholars would have assumed verse 1 to be read by a court poet so that it means this. Yahweh says to the king, and then the rest of verse 1. But David was clearly the greatest king in the history of Israel, and David was the one writing the psalm. Stay with me. I hope I haven't lost you. We're getting this explanation is unfolding and it takes a while to unfold and what I'm hoping is you'll be like I have been with Psalm 110 over the years where I'm like uh okay I get it now that makes sense just hang in there a little bit lighter so day longer David writes Yahweh says to my Adonai to my Lord so it was a a complex argument that Jesus made to the religious leaders, but they got it. And once you get it, the clouds will dissipate and you'll be left with a brilliant, clear day on which the sun shines brightly. The sun, S-O-N, get, I'm sorry, I'm really sorry. That's like the worst granddad joke ever, not the worst dad joke ever. It is really bad. Back to Matthew 22. Up to this final dramatic portion of the debate, the leaders have essentially said to Jesus, Oh yeah, if you're so smart, then what about this? And Jesus bested them every single time so that they never could come back at his response. And this stuff going on, look, you've, I know a lot of you have missed the things that we used to do in big groups we used to go to movies. We used to go to concerts. We went to ball games. We went to shopping malls back in the 20th century. We, we, we did all those kind of things. And, and it's kind of like it's gone. Well, this is what people did in those days. They, they gathered around for these kinds of debates. They loved this kind of interaction. And it would go back and forth, but every t- time... They would say, Jesus, what about this? He'd answer and they'd say, well, that didn't work. Okay, well, what about this? And now he puts a question to them that they can't answer. And he asks, if the Messiah comes from David's line, then David would be greater than his descendant, right? Right? If that is the case, why does David acknowledge his descendant is greater than himself? So much so that he calls the one to come his Lord. In Jewish culture, the son would call the father Lord, but the father would never, under any circumstances, call the son my Lord. All these years, the religious leaders thought they had understood Psalm 110.1. But in a moment, their ignorance was revealed. Jesus' question stopped the leaders from asking any further questions of their own. They knew that Jesus claimed to be the Messiah. 
And even though he had made claims to be divine, he was now providing almost irrefutable biblical support for his claims. The Jews had understood Psalm 110. In fact, whenever the Jews thought about the Messiah, they thought about a great ruler. But they didn't think that this one would be divine. Now, Daniel 7, Daniel had pointed to a divine being coming. But they were like, what does that mean? Uh, I don't know. Let's look at Daniel 8. You know, let's just keep moving. They, they didn't see this ruler as divine. And so now Jesus is saying, he has to be. Because he's greater than David, the greatest king in the history of Israel. The religious leaders then fell on their face and said, Lord, we worship you. Uh, no, that didn't happen. They, they got together and they said, we got to crucify this. We got to have this guy crucified. We got to put an end to this now. Can you imagine? This level of opposition against Jesus helps us understand the difficult language in the rest of the psalm, beginning with Yahweh telling Jesus, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Does this seem unnecessarily, like unnecessarily harsh language to you? Why does Jesus have to be the kind of conquering king who puts his foot on the necks of his enemies, showing his authority and superiority over them? Can't we just all get along and live together in harmony and peace? Why does he have to be this way? The short answer is sin. It is difficult for any of us to have a conception of perfection. But God is perfect, so much so that he is called holy or other than. We have nothing with which to compare God and no better way to describe him than other than, other than us, other than we are. Our sin, which comes from our nature, is an offense to a holy God and cannot under any circumstances be allowed to exist comfortably in his presence. Because of God's deep love for those he created, he sent Jesus to address our sin. It's astonishing that God's plan brought about the perfect sacrifice of Jesus on the cross through his conflict with religious leaders who assumed that they were good enough to stand before God in their righteousness. It turns out their righteousness was self-righteousness. The worst kind. You think about the worst sinner you know. The most wicked sinner you know. You know who's worse than that sinner in God's eyes? Self-righteous. The ones who think they're good enough. Our only hope of salvation is to abandon any efforts to placate a holy God and to confess our sins and call out for Jesus to save us. Oh, okay, so I get that. I get it. But is it necessary for all this? I will make your enemies your footstool language. 
Look, just because you want something to be true does not make it true. Just because you want to believe that the Taliban will honor their commitment to let anybody get to the airport in, in Baghdad that wants to. No, not Baghdad. I'm sorry, Kabul. Just because you want that to be true does not make it true. The truth about Jesus has a way of becoming clear. But it will be too late for those who wait until the end. Do I wish it were different than this? Well, it really doesn't matter what I wish. I need to deal with reality as I find it or, as the case may be, as it finds me. Not only does God the Father tell Jesus to sit at his right hand, indicating power, authority, and divinity, which means equality with God, but in verse 2, he tells Jesus to reign in the midst of his enemies. So wait a minute. Kings don't reign in the midst of their enemies. They, they, they go back to Rome or they go back to Washington, D.C. And they, and they constantly expand their authority, always reigning from the capital city. But Jesus rules in the enemy camp. How is that so? Well, since Jesus was resurrected, since the time that he came out of the grave, he has ruled over all, and even though his kingdom has not fully come in power for everyone to see, he is sovereign over all things. And as his representatives, we are the one who extend Jesus' rule into places where he is opposed. And that may be in Afghanistan, and it may be in the college dorm room. In verse 3, we see that those who represent the Lord do so gladly and willingly. The world is ultimately divided into two groups. Those who oppose Jesus and those who willingly yield to his authority. According to scripture, those who deny God's existence are categorized as those who oppose him. And you may think, I don't even believe in him, so how can I oppose him? Just because you do not want something to be true does not mean that it is not true. I don't know how many negatives are in there, but you get Ultimately, ultimately, there are those who seek to God, get to God through their own Efforts who seek to achieve salvation of whatever form it takes. And those who understand that it will be right. If one is to be right with God, God must descend to him or her. This God did by sending Jesus to earth. And if we are to know him, we must come to the cross where he died for our sins and where he meets us. No other place, only at the cross. So that is a brief explanation of some of the truth revealed in the first three verses of Psalm 110. How is it that the Bible doesn't work without this psalm? We'll get to that two weeks from now when we might we draw verse 4. For now, though, 
what application might we draw from what we have learned? Four brief thoughts, brief being a relative. Beginning with, Jesus is God, full stop. I did that for my Aussie wife. She loves full stop. And she's got one of those on her phone, and she, she'll say, uh, so-and-so to Keisha, or hi, lovely Keisha, and she goes on, to, and then she'll say full stop. She never finishes a message on the first go. You know, it always cuts off. And I'm like, you don't have to start up. Well, I'm, I'm in trouble. I'm happy, very happy man, so blessed with my wife who says often, full stop. That's the claim that Jesus made. I'm God. And that's the claim that scripture makes. You don't have to believe it, but you should acknowledge that it's what scripture says. It is dangerous to make the Bible simply a book of rules or a self-help help manual, or a guide for prosperity and health. Religious people as well as irreligious people are prone to miss the entire focus of the Bible, Jesus, creator and redeemer of the world. Psalm 110 stated the truth about the Messiah, and then Jesus forced the religious leaders to reflect on Psalm 110, 1, in ways that they had not considered. And then the apostles connected all the dots and they gave us the truth. Now, this is important to understand. The Bible, the Old Testament, was written in such a way that you understood God has a covenant with his people. He's got his part, we've got our part but he let us know back even in the Old Testament that we can never do our part, so something more is needed. It pointed to someone who would come that would be not only a conquering king, but a suffering servant. But once again, they got back there. What does this mean, Papa, about the suffering servant? I don't know. But... I tell you this, when the Messiah comes, we'll throw off the shackles of Babylon. We'll throw off the shackles of Rome. Well, Jesus comes along and says, there's more to the story than you, were, you think. And the rest of the story, in fact, the whole story is me. Then the apostles come along and say, this is what Jesus meant. So, Understand this, the Old Testament makes way more sense in light of the New Testament, in view of the New Testament. Or the New Testament is essentially the Old Testament rewritten in view of the cross. But we don't really understand what Jesus meant until we get to the apostles and they tell us what Jesus meant. You hear about red-letter Christians who say, I don't care about the Bible except for the words of Jesus. Really? Have you read the words? of? Can you make sense of the parables? Oh, I love that Jesus teaches them. These are not Aesop's fables. These are, these are truths that are very complex. Nobody understood. Or when they got to the end of them and they did understood, they were furious with Jesus because what he was doing was identifying two groups of people, those who are with me and those who are not. 
And those who are not with me are my enemies. Those who are with me will be saved, are saved, are being saved, and will be saved. And then the apostles bring it all together. So you have to know the epistles before you can understand what was meant in the gospels. I, I, look, one of the key thoughts that I have about scripture is never get too far away from the gospels. You, it's Jesus. It's, he's, he's there. But we don't fully understand until later. Peter laid the foundation of the truth about Jesus at Pentecost, where he preached to thousands, some of whom had questioned Jesus less than two months earlier and had helped Jesus condemn or helped have Jesus condemned to death. So listen to Peter's bold words in Acts chapter 2, verses 33 to 36. And I imagine some of these people repented of their sins when the Holy Spirit brought Peter's words to life. And Peter was not only talking about Psalm 110, he was talking about Matthew 22, Mark 12, Luke, it's also there. And he said, this is what it all means. This is how it all comes together. This Jesus, God raised up. And of that, we are all witnesses, talking about those who were leading the, the meeting, the 120. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God. And having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit... He has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. Lord and Christ, this Jesus, this Jesus is Lord and Christ whom you've crucified. I think I got the slide somehow goofed up there. Verse 34, for David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you have crucified. That last verse got onto the other slide as well. Amen. Jesus is God. Full stop. Second, we must at some point answer the question, what do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? The question is not, what do you think about God? The question is, what do you think about Jesus? Because if, you, if I ask you, <clears throat> what do you think about God? You're likely to say, well, I just think, or I just believe. But again, just because we want it to be true doesn't make it true. If God exists, then he must reveal himself to us. If we are going to know him, which we believe he did through Jesus, through his word. This is how we know truth from God. So who do you think Jesus is? And if you think he is Lord, will you submit? Will you believe? Will you submit to him? Hearing and receiving the gospel is usually a process. We, we understand the gospel in bits and pieces. If you want to share Christ with your family or friends, <clears throat> you don't have to feel compelled to share the gospel, the whole gospel, <clears throat> every time, especially if you've shared it before, because people receive it in bits 
and pieces. God's holiness, our fallen nature, our inability to keep the law, the consequences of our sin, the need for a redeemer, the sacrificial death of Christ on the cross, repentance and faith, all these are elements of the gospel. And I can promise you, when I called out to Jesus, I didn't understand anywhere close to the full gospel, but I knew enough to call out to Jesus. My only hope was in him, and he saved me. So at the point when the Holy Spirit opens a person's eyes to understand who Jesus is, a choice must be made. Life in many ways is one choice after another, but the most important choice of all will come when one chooses, do I follow Jesus? or my own path for salvation. I hope you choose Jesus. And I, I can promise you if you do, it's not going to be easy. Man, when I got saved, it was during the Jesus movement. I was a hippie as much as you can be a hippie and live at home. I was at a conference in New York last week, and this lady had said something in, in, a, in, in, in a session that I thought was really cool, and I went over and talked to her about it. She said, you're from North Carolina. I said, yeah. She said, I was at UNC. She, we kept talking until we found out we were at the same festival, music festival, where Tom Rush was. Anybody know Tom Rush? She said, oh, yeah, I was there. She, turns out she was Mary Pope Osborne who wrote the treehouse, the the Magic Treehouse series, and I didn't know, but my grandkids all knew. But we talked about realities and what life looks like and what is real, what is not real, what is real. Life won't be easy after you get saved. In my day, they all said, oh, you need to get high on Jesus and all of it's better than cocaine and all these kind of things. I'm, even before I was saved, I'm like, I don't, no, I don't think that's the deal. But when I called out to Jesus, my life was so radically changed. It was wonderful, but it was hard. I didn't have to give up my friends that gave me up, but it was okay. I got friends that are just so... So faithful. But you should know it's not going to be easy. That's the focus of our third point. There is a war with eternal consequences. Whether we want there to be or not. We must prepare our hearts for battle. Some of you support missionary Pippa Rader. Who is the daughter of our church missionaries. Mike and Sarah Rader in Australia. Peppa is a dorm supervisor for missionary kids who attend Black Forest Academy in Germany. It's near the borders of Switzerland and France. And I just think, hey, somebody's got to live there, right? <laughs> you know? I got to live in Plumtree. Maybe not quite this beautiful, but close. This summer, in addition to the kids who were coming in in the next day or two, there have been three families that didn't want to be there. They were missionaries in Afghanistan and they fled the country. They got out just ahead of the chaos and the craziness. 
I, I wouldn't be surprised if some of you know someone in the country. In fact, some of you may know a lot of people in the country. You've been there. And we may, in fact, have some church members who are deployed to the Middle East in, in, in the near future. So pray much for the people who are in or may soon go to Afghanistan and the people who are already there. Look, there's, there are not many people. There are some people, yes, that want Afghanistan to be unsettled, but not many want it to be so. But it is. You may want to present Jesus to others without inciting any opposition. But if you follow Jesus and you submit your life to obedience to God's word, your beliefs and choices are going to rub some people the wrong way and some people are going to be very angry with you. I don't know many historians or sociologists that I hope not. I don't think we're going to see more personal violence through the years. I hope not. I hope it turns and goes the other way. And I think it, it, it may, but it may not. And the source of the anger, ultimately, we know, is God's rule over the nations. And God's rule in our individual lives you may not want to enter a war zone, but if you serve in Jesus' army, you are heading for the front lines. We will see this very clearly next Sunday. When we look at Psalm 45. We must prepare our hearts for battle. But it's not the same kind of war or battle in which we seek to inflict harm. In fact, it's the exact Opposite, which leads to our last point. It is our privilege and responsibility to love the enemies of our Lord where we find them. It is Jesus' right and responsibility to judge them at the appropriate time. Jesus' followers serve him in the midst of his enemies. The New Testament calls us pilgrims and aliens in a foreign land. While on mission for Jesus, we have the privilege of loving the lost in the same way that someone loved us when we were lost and needed to know Jesus. We have the privilege of bringing the aroma of Christ to the world. And to some, it will be the fragrance of life, but it will also, to some, be the fragrance of death. It is not your responsibility to win others to Jesus. That makes some of you mad. That makes some of you, that helps some of you feel relieved. It's not your responsibility to win others to Jesus. It is, however, your responsibility to share the gospel with others. You don't have to be an evangelist, but you do need to be faithful to share Jesus with those who don't know him when you have the opportunity. And he gives us opportunity. If you've got the guts, pray today. Lord, give me opportunities to share Christ this week. Because he will give you opportunities. If you'll pray that. Furthermore, it's not our responsibility to condemn others for their beliefs. We're far too political, folks. 
Our job is kingdom business. I'm not against politics. I'm glad there are Christians in politics. We got some of our folks in grace who are actively involved. I'm grateful for that. But it's not our responsibility to condemn others. Maybe condemn ideas, challenge ideas would be better. Our responsibility is to share truth in love. There is one to whom all must and will answer. Jesus will judge sin and sinners at the appropriate time. He must do so. His character demands it. It is our privilege and responsibility to play the role that God has designed for us to play in rescuing as many people as we can. And we know ultimately that God is the one who does the rescuing. Many of you have been trying to rescue people. How's that been working out for you? Now, we, we can do a lot of things that facilitate what God is trying to do. But he's the one. Love people Support people in need, pray for people, and let God do the work. He's the only one who can rescue the lost. Time is running out. We are in a war, and it's time to get busy. Let's close by reading Psalm 110, verses 1 through 3, one more time. A Psalm of David. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely in the day of your power. In holy garments, garments washed white by the blood of the Lamb. From the dew of the morning... The dew of your youth will be yours. Let's pray. Well, Father, um, I, I, it, it just makes so many people, believers and unbelievers alike, uncomfortable to think about your rule to the point of putting your foot on the necks of your enemies. It is the word. And the more we know about scripture. The more we understand. And we thank you that you have relieved us. Of the responsibility of fighting in that kind of a way. You have in fact. Called us. To love our enemies. And to extend Jesus kingdom into the midst of those who oppose him. There will be a day that we will say, great is the Lord for all his works, including the destruction of his enemies. But for now, we pray with Paul, Lord, Lord, please, yield save those who mean so much to us. May we yield ourselves afresh and anew, gladly and willingly, In service for the king. 
May this book come alive to us as the Holy Spirit brings us greater and greater understanding through the years. And may Jesus be exalted in our personal lives and in our midst. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. Would you please stand for the benediction? Thank you for listening to audio from Grace Community Church, located in North Carolina. Feel free to make copies of this audio content to share with others. But please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. For more information about Grace Community Church, go to graceccnc.org.